Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian Ministry, Word and Sacraments. Page 63 is where, excuse me, page 61 at the very bottom is where we left off. And again, we're talking about original sin, and we're going all the way in depth here. Last week, we looked at four arguments for why it's necessary to distinguish between human nature and original sin. We can't simply identify those two things because of, in the first place, creation. God continues to create, and he creates not what is evil, but what is good, and then that good is corrupted or tainted by Satan. So two different actors, two different origins, two different things human nature versus original sin. Next was the argument from the resurrection, that Jesus becomes a human being, but without sin. And so it's necessary to distinguish humanity from original sin. If you didn't, if they simply to be human was to be a sinner, then when Christ became man, he would become a sinner. And the scriptures speak contrary to that, obviously. The third argument had to do with sanctification, that there's a renewal that takes place and a distinction can be made so that the human being, um, as new man, can be distinct from old man. So there's a separation, again, between the human being as such, as a creature of God, here in this case, sanctified, renewed, reborn, regenerate, all those words by the Holy Spirit. That's distinct from the fallen nature. And last but not least was the resurrection of our bodies. On the last day, we're going to be raising our bodies, and our bodies are going to be without sin. So sin can be taken away from our bodies, taken away from our persons. So therefore, there's a distinction between human nature and original sin. So far, so good? All right, we'll uh, plot into the new material, but first, let's have an invocation of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so at the bottom of uh, page 61... At question 111, there's some irony to this question, as you'll see. Is original sin essence or accident? The answer. Since the philosophic and dialectical words essence and accident are unknown to the unlearned common people not familiar with the arts, and they cannot be instructed regarding the proper meaning of these words, In fact, these very scholastic words of the arts cannot be adequately rendered in German. It is most prudent that simple and common hearers be not disturbed by those words of the arts and schools, since there are other known and common words in the form of sound speech by which this doctrine can be set forth and explained to the common people." Okay, so just put a finger there. So the, the irony, obviously, is that this is really difficult stuff to understand and shouldn't really be taught in the churches. 
Well, here we are. <laughs> okay, carrying on. But when the learned use the words of the arts or dialectical terms among themselves in these discussions, we know that they are commonly regarded as clear alternatives, so that whatever it is, it is either essence or accident. And since Augustine rightly condemns that proposition as Manichaean, that sin is essence or nature, it is clear that dialectic words fit the doctrine of original sin. For since that which does not subsist of itself, nor is part of another, but is unchangeably in another, is commonly and by the people called accident. Augustine does not shy away from the word accident in this dispute. But since those philosophic words accident and quality are too light and cold to express the magnitude, gravity, and abomination of original sin, Lest, therefore, through those Aristotelian words, original sin is extenuated, contrary to the position of Scripture, as scholastic writers have by their philosophic accident and dialectic qualities falsely extenuated the power of original sin, one must be diligently on guard, lest by philosophic disputes and arguments about essential forms and about accidents and qualities, the simple doctrine of original sin taught in Scripture be muddled and distorted. Okay, so pause here. (laughs) So (coughs) the first first danger is that this stuff's all too heady to be profitable for uh, teaching in the church. And the second problem is if you go around calling uh, original sin merely an accidental property or merely a quality, in the common mind, you're denigrating it. You're saying, oh, so it's just, it's like putting on a shirt, you know. And that, you know, if a shirt isn't essentially who I am, it's, you know, my presentation as a whole, my shirt is an accident, okay? It's not a substance, I can change it. If you say that's all original sin is, you've just given a false impression about what the Bible teaches original sin is. So, it's the second difficulty identified by Chemnitz in this part. All right, let me just finish out the paragraph, and then we'll see if you want to get into this at all or not. I don't know. It's often furrowed brows. (laughs) One must, therefore, add the clear statement that original sin is not such a light accident or light quality as a dialectician makes it to be with reference to his accidents and qualities, but it is so great a depravity of the whole nature of man that the mind cannot conceive it by thought nor the tongue express it in words. Thus, Luther writes on Psalm 90 that whatever you call original sin, uh, a quality or sickness, it is certainly an extreme evil. All right, so there's the, the bottom line is that this really gets us no further than there is a distinction between human nature and original sin, which is where we began. This doesn't further us along that path. This simply is speaking that very fundamental truth in philosophic categories, Aristotelian categories of substance and accident, which are, it's helpful to have a general understanding of this distinction because it does arise in the Book of Concord, um, in this and other places, 
it is um, essential for understanding the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, the so-called transformation of the bread into the body such that there's no longer any substance of the bread, but only the mere accidents of the bread abiding. So it is. it can be a helpful category for people who study Lutheran theology. It's just... It's only helpful insofar as it's helpful in the first place. In the second place, it can be distorting. And I think that Chemnitz draws both those points home masterfully here. So anything we want to touch on in regard to to that distinction or topic? When you say accident, isn't that saying... You want to clarify it because that's what he's saying. Because they say accident is just too easy of a term. But if it's a major accident compared to oh. stubbing your toe, <laughs> then it would be, hey, yeah, yeah you know, sure. let's say if it's you know a high speed wreck, it would yeah. be a little different. So sin would be that way. It, it's it is an accident, but it's a real bad one. Sure, yeah. Suffering. If you want to use accident in that sense, right? Yeah. So, Point of his, this, is the real point of this discussion that to to be a, a true human is, I mean, we don't have to be sinful to be human, right? Isn't that the whole point of this? Exactly. Is that Christ is showing us what true humanity is. In other words, is that mm-hmm. kind of the main point of the whole this whole this whole argument? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Like if you zoom out of these particular categories and you just look at the big picture. God made Adam and Eve as human beings. They're sinless. Christ is incarnate. He's sinless. We will be raised in our bodies sinless. There's a larger picture, which I think you're drawing out, which is Adam and Eve are even in their state of sinlessness, not yet like unto Christ in his sinlessness. And we as Christians, this is part of the mystery revealed, is that we are being conformed into the image of Christ, into the image of true man. So now we're shifting our categories and we're shifting our way of thinking. But there is a sense, even if you go, sinless man in the garden is good. Sinless man at the end of the age is better than good. He's reached his telos. Sometimes we use the word perfect, But perfect can conjure in our minds like the sense of no further development as complete, necessarily. And I think that also gives, if not a false impression, too precise of an impression. So I like the idea of we are maturing, we are being conformed into the image of Christ. We are going from good to mature or from good to telos. Yeah. So that, but that was in role, I, I mean, that was in place. Irenaeus really popularizes this above all. And then Luther picks this up in his lectures on Galatians that if Adam and Eve never fell into sin, this was still the same trajectory. God doesn't create Adam and Eve and say, that's it. I, this is the, the telos. This is the completion. This is perfection. This is, there's going to be no further growth for the human race. No, very clearly, the same end that we will arrive at is what God had seen in place from the very beginning. 
So you've got this trajectory, Adam and Eve were to grow. Luther, I think it's translated into English, obviously, but uses this distinction between like the earthly man and the spiritual man. And there'd be a transition from earthly life to spiritual life. So that's, that's what God's purpose was from the beginning. When we fell into sin, we fell off of that trajectory entirely. Our trajectory was now um, toward hell. So Christ comes as our new capitus, our new head, and recapitulates us, so to speak. He is the new head that leads us back onto that trajectory of the original creation where we're going from good to telos. And to me, that's, that's our hope, right? That mm-hmm. this, whole, this whole argument about humanity and, and sin don't have to be permanently entwined because that's our hope. We, to, no. to, to hit that telos where we mm-hmm. have no sin. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't imagine what that's <laughs> going to be like, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the Manichaean era would preclude that. That's one of the ditches we're trying not to fall into. That's this this error that to be human is to be a sinner. See, all that theology is robbed then if you fall into that heresy. And that heresy was fallen into by Lutherans who were very intelligent and should have known better. One of them, Flacius, who in many other articles is a champion of the faith and a wonderful heroic man. But so wanting to... Um, hold firm and assert the doctrine of original sin that the mistake was made of uniting, uh, of not making a distinction between original sin and the essence of man. So that's what's being called out. Now, of course, on the other side is the idea of Pelagianism, that there's some part of man that is not tainted by sin, whether that's his will or his intellect. And so then in some way, shape, or form, he participates in his conversion that's also precluded. Original sin is so great a corruption and blight upon our essence and nature that nothing is left uncorrupted. Our will is corrupted. Our intellect is corrupted. Our emotions are corrupted. And isn't that true? I mean, we experience this all the time. You think logical thoughts that are satanic. You feel emotional responses to things that you know are wrong. Surely you've had that experience where you're watching a movie and you're like, you know, you're near tears, but if you stop and analyze, you're like, this is wickedness. <laughs> Just being swept up in the emotions of the, uh, of, the, of the movie or the story or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, everything's fallen. So those are the two ditches that we're wanting to avoid because they both lead to shipwreck of the faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, please. I'm just, this is only a comment. Um, if you were only able to get, explain this in, in a couple of minutes to a simple person, by which I am myself, um, when you just say that your identity is in Christ, even though we're not perfect yet, um, our identity is found in him, it's not in our sin nature. And, and just to know that we are, it's our goal is to respond as Christ has respond. Exactly. I, I think that's so well worded. This is where simul justus et peccator, that Latin phrase that we're at the same time a sinner and a saint, is really, a, in every sense of the word, a secondary or penultimate kind of confession. It's a confession of... Uh, because even the full confession is... So if you follow the logic of Romans 7... It's 
simul justus et peccator, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, the good that I want to do, I don't do. The evil that I don't want to do, that I keep on doing. Oh, well, I have Christ's righteousness imputed to me. That's not what he says. He goes on and in further analysis makes the primary or ultimate distinction, which is if I agree with the law that it is good, then it is no longer I who sin, but sin that dwells within me. So the primary or the ultimate identity of the Christian is not simul used to set Bacotter, but as a saint in opposition to his flesh. So much so that my sin is not even me, because why? I'm against it. I confess it. I count it wretchedness. I want it gone. That's why also, I mean, just by way of shorthand, in all the addresses, you can think of the Paul letters, he writes, to the saints in Ephesus. But notice what he doesn't write, to the sinner saints in Ephesus. Okay? It, the reality that we are sinner saints temporarily for this life is an important one. We don't want to fall into the ditch of thinking we can achieve holiness in this life. Okay? Uh, we don't want to fall into the ditch of thinking that there's no regeneration, there's no saint within us whatsoever. We want to avoid those two ditches, obviously. But the idea that we just confess we're sinner saints is not, in fact, the primary confession of the New Testament. It's that we are saints. That's our primary identity. Saints, new men, sons of light, sons of obedience. That's all those themes. The more you look at it, that is the dominant way of speaking in Scripture. And it makes perfect sense. We don't say, well, I'm a son of light and a son of darkness. We don't say, I'm a good tree and a bad tree. (laughs) We don't say, you know, I'm a son of the devil and of God. (laughs) You know, and that's the simul justus folks who want to champion that all the time as the primary identity are making that very categorical error and that very scriptural error. That is a reflection of secondary value. Now, it is of utmost importance, as I just described. You don't want to fall into these two errors that could shipwreck your faith. But it is a secondary or penultimate, not primary or ultimate, reflection on the identity we have in Christ. So, thank you for that. Good point. Okay, hand all the way up front. Two comments. One, in watching the first time I watched the Rocky movie, I'm rooting for Rocky, Balboa, and everything. And then one day I realized he was a bag man, but the author writes the story in such a way you're rooting for this terrible person. But he, he does transform somewhat. Okay. Anyway, the point that hit me coming in in the middle of the conversation is there are things called accidentals in music. There's a scale pattern, and then there comes a time when you can alter it a little bit. But it's not part of the scale, but it's useful in the music. All right. I'll have to take your word for that. I'm not well acquainted enough with music. But I see another head or two nodding. So so if that's a good analogy, I I can't comment. Uh, But, yeah, this is, uh, again, I mean... This, this can be complicated. The Aristotelian categories themselves can be complicated. 
one can even sort of question to what extent those categories are valid or in what ways they're valid. There's a whole philosophical argument and debate to be had there. That aside, it can be a helpful distinction, and it is used by our theologians, by all theologians in the West, really, um, in order to describe things of this of this character. So, in terms of, uh, yeah, well, let's just leave it there. Main point, of course, that you're a human being created by God, deeply corrupted by original sin, but that original sin can be removed from you and you can be a human being as God created you to be. And even more than a human being patterned off of the quote-unquote good image of Adam and Eve, but a human being patterned after, off, after excuse me, the mature or full image of Christ. So the difference between earthly man and spiritual man is the distinction I'm using there. Okay, shall we move on? So, question 112. When does original sin begin in us? Answer. Not then first when a man has come to the years of discretion, as we commonly say. In fact, also not then first when he is born. But in that very moment in which he is conceived in his mother's womb, the mass is already contaminated and infected by original sin. And there's scripture references given to Genesis 8, John 3, and Psalm 51. You can go look at those if you have any doubts. But to our corruption begins at conception. And that's really the nature of original sin, especially if you remember that original sin is hereditary sin. So in order for you to be born, you have, or excuse me, conceived, you have original sin. Because it's hereditary in nature. <laughs> Blame your dad for everything, right? <laughs> it's your fault, Dad. That's right. That's right. Well, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, does it? Yeah. Pastor, uh, asking about this uh, hereditary, does the sin come through the father? Uh, uh, does that kind of connect with... The Some people ver- speculate that that's the okay. case. That's I, not biblically... Uh, I don't confirmed. know. I don't know. I, I think it's an open question. I think that's my general sense, but I don't know. I don't have a high degree of certainty or a real strong opinion in regard to that question. It makes a lot of sense. I just don't know or don't know if there's enough in the scriptures to really say we have to hold to that. It's common in the early church. Uh, it might even be in Luther. I can't remember... Um, but it's this common idea so that if you, if you take, I mean, and it makes a lot of sense when you think of why a virgin birth. Was God just showing off? I mean, he, is that all there is to it? I don't know. There's certainly a distinction between the barren, through, out of whom he brings life, and the virgin, out of whom, they're, they're both kinds of barrenness, 
But I think that there's more to it than that, and it may well have at least part of the reality being when you remove the man, you remove the passing on of the original sin. It's possible. Okay, next question. 113. How and through whom are we freed from original sin? Only through Christ, whose merit is applied to us by the washing of water by the word, so that regenerated, we are cleansed from sin and renewed through the Holy Spirit. And then John 3, Ephesians 5, Titus 3. Uh, Titus 3 is what he mostly has here based on his language. That's mostly what he's just riffing off of. But you can see if you analyze this, that same twofold distinction we've seen in Chemnitz before, that original sin is conquered in two different ways. First, by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. That's our justification. Because you're never going to be rid of original sin in this life. Not until death. So in order for Christ to reckon you righteous, the righteousness of another, namely his righteousness, must be imputed to you, credited to your account. Make sense? Okay, but then the second way is through regeneration, and that is that a new man is begun within, and that has an ontology, it has a reality, a substance to it. Okay, and so then that new man is constantly at war with the old man. This is why Luther says that what does baptizing with water signify? That just as you were drowned under those waters, we should daily drown the old man in repentance and contrition. And just as you came up out of those baptismal waters, we should daily arise as new men to live before God in righteousness and innocence. Okay, so that warfare then requires an ontology that you be a saint and a sinner, that you be a saint primarily who is daily drowning the old Adam, daily arising as a new man. Okay? So that, uh, those two ideas, one, the merit applied, and second, regeneration. These are the two ways in which we are freed from original sin. In the first place, the guilt of it, and in the second place, the actuality of it. And not perfectly in this life, but when you die, you don't die. That's Jesus' point. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. He's talking to you as new man. He's talking to you as you properly are. You as new man will never die. In death, what dies is the old man who is not you. That's why Jesus says, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Okay. So then 114 is original sin then remitted in baptism in such a way that thereafter no remnants of it are left over in this life in those who are baptized. Wouldn't that be nice? That'd be great. Be great. Wouldn't it be great, especially for parents? All of a sudden, infant baptism would become the most popular thing. (laughs) So, Chemnitz's answer, it is commonly and rightly said in the schools that the formal of original sin is taken away in baptism. The material remains. For Paul already washed and sanctified through baptism 
yet complains with all saints that that radical sin still dwells in his flesh and that it does so in such a way that it begets in him all kinds of concupiscence. There's that word for uh, desire contrary to God. In fact, it takes him captive under the law of sin, which is in his members. Law of sin here, like law of gravity, like force or strength, which is in his members, so that he must continually, through the Spirit, fight with himself against that indwelling sin and pray without ceasing that for the sake of Christ, God would not impute those natural, and here we are talking about the original sin, or those that flow from original sin, those natural sins, as Ambrose says. So Romans 7 in view, obviously, Galatians 5 also referenced. Okay, I don't know that that adds anything new to our discussion. It's just that, yes, original sin exists after baptism in the saints. So when God says that the law is written on a man's heart, so it takes place when we physically born or when we are spiritually born? Mm, That's a great question. Um, both, but in different ways, would be my answer. Could you repeat the question? So, yes, sure. I'll, I'll try since I might. So when is the law written on a human being's heart? And I think the scriptures speak about this in two different ways, even though it uses the same kind of language. So if you look at the early chapters of Romans, Paul's point is that from conception... The law of God, the natural law, is written into men's hearts in such a way that all men know that there's a creator. They have the knowledge of God and the knowledge of what's right and wrong. But that, that knowledge they suppress and others help them suppress that knowledge. So I think that that's a a sound biblical argument for the natural law being written on men's hearts from conception forward. The problem is it's suppressed and perverted immediately. So it's there, but being suppressed and subverted immediately. So then how is that law written on our hearts Uh, via something like Jeremiah 31, where a new covenant, we're in the old Mosaic covenant, Sinaitic covenant, where the new covenant is put forth, and that covenant consists of two very familiar things, the forgiveness of sins, but the law written on the heart. Is that in contradiction with Paul? No, no. What's being spoken of here by the prophet Jeremiah is the renewal of the Holy Spirit so that that law, which, that natural law, which is written in our hearts from conception, which is suppressed and perverted, is now written once more by the Holy Spirit and indeed written in such a way that it's Christiform and living and active. So I think you have those two writings of the law, as it were, on men's hearts and they're 
they have a, a some overlap, but they're largely distinct. So another way to think about this, and I don't mean to confuse you further, but another way to think about this is, remember the commandment that John speaks of to love? Is that an old commandment or a new commandment? Yes. <laughs> it's an old commandment, but what is the good of the old commandment to love? There's not, really ultimately nothing but condemnation. There's a superficial, external love, but the internal of the heart and the mind and the soul, the strength, will, intellect, it's incapable of that love that the law requires. That's the old commandment to love. But what's the new commandment to love? Well, with those sins and deficiencies cleansed by the blood of Christ, with the Christian heart born from above, renewed, made new in the Holy Spirit, that command to love indwells the heart in such a way that that the heart, the point isn't that the heart is condemned. Again, the blood of Christ covers it. But that the heart truly is changed so that with a person's soul, with a person's heart, with a person's mind, they begin to love God. That's why you're here. <laughs> right? It's why you confess the creed. It's why you have a desire to go to church. Obviously, your flesh is opposed to all those things, but you know in your heart what the right thing is to do. That's the first table of the law. That's actually the highest table of the law. We poo-poo this stuff all the time. It's evidence that you're saved, and it's evidence that you are completely and utterly different than a fallen human being who on Sunday morning has no compulsion whatsoever to go to church or to give God anything, but simply thinks to themselves, what would I like to do today? How will I serve myself? So you can see those two things are very different. I mean, if you're... If you're trying to talk about like, well, where's, where's the most obvious place in which you'd see the fruit of a Christian, the good fruit from a good tree over and against the bad fruit from a bad tree, I would direct you to the first table of the law. Because the Christian, despite all his faults, even if he's fallen out of the habit of going to church, if asked, will say, do you still love Christ? And he'll say, yes, I love Christ. I don't love him as he deserves. Ah, that is a heart that is filled with light relative to a heart that is like, no, I don't love Christ. I could give two rips about Christ, and I'm off to the golf course. A profound difference. Okay, we're not justified by that difference, but to deny that difference is insanity and its own kind of heresy that leads to all kinds of problems. All right, so... That's probably good enough there. Shall we move on to 115? What then is the efficacy of baptism against original sin if it remains in the reborn in this life also after baptism? Answer. Paul points out that the effect of baptism is twofold, namely regeneration and renewal. Titus 3.5 for first, uh, well, so, okay, so Titus 3.5, sorry, I think I read that the wrong intonation there. That's what's in the background in Paul's mind here, or excuse me, Chemnitz's mind. Hmm, need a minute to sip my coffee and recollect myself. Okay. Once more from the top. Paul points out that the effect of baptism is twofold, namely regeneration and renewal. 
he has Titus 3.5 in mind. He continues, For first, sins are washed away in remission through baptism by the word, so that they are not imputed. If they who are baptized remain in Christ through faith, and thus guilt is taken away. All right, so do note carefully here that Paul's using the language of regeneration. A little bit. Why did I say Paul? What's wrong with me? Chemnitz is using the language of regeneration in a little different way than maybe it is commonly used today. Because what Paul means by regeneration in this case, as is quite clear, is the non imputation of sin. The removal of guilt. That's what we would call forensic or imputative. Okay, so I think the contrast will come clearer. So let him just continue um, with this final sentence on the non-imputation of sin, the washing away of sins through baptism, the washing away of guilt. And this remission is not half or partial but full, perfect, and complete. And again, that's why Luther says, uh, baptismus sum, I am baptized. So it's true. Maybe you saw that. uh, Gosh, I don't know if I can reconstruct it, but there was a meme that was going around where this guy, I think it was on Facebook, announced, um, I don't forget what his lady friend's name was, let's say Brenda, said, Brenda, I would like everyone to know that Brenda and I are no longer dating. And then underneath she goes, Brad, that's a terrible way of saying that we're married. (laughs) All right. So we can say I was married. It's true. I know the date. I know the place. I was married. But doesn't that give a false impression? It would be, give a more clearer impression to say, I am married. Right? So it's both true that I was married and I am married. <laughs> okay? Now, what's the point? Baptism follows that analogy. It's fine to say you were baptized, but it can also give a false impression. It's far more accurate to say, I am baptized. Baptismus sum. It's a constant reality. It's a daily reality, so that every day is a baptismal day. That's the point here. And the point then is that the remission of sins rendered in baptism, the washing away of sins, is not partial, but it is full, perfect, complete, and daily. Every day your sins are washed away by the reality of baptism. So that's the first part that, again, he kind of call, he calls generate, regeneration, which is... I think kind of a confusing term. We usually put that on the other side. But anyway, be that as it may, you see what he means. Okay, second, in place of lost original righteousness, the Holy Ghost begins renewal by which he begins to crucify and mortify original depravity with its actions. But this benefit of renewal is not perfectly completed in this life so that that corrupt root of original depravity is completely taken away and uprooted out of our nature in this life. 
but the Holy Ghost works, continues, and increases that mortification and renewal, which has been begun through this, which has been begun through this whole life and those who have been reborn. So again, you just see these two parts that baptism does two different things. There's a remission of sins where your sins aren't imputed to you. And then there's also an an ontology. There's an ontological change, a very change in your being where there's a new man who's born from above, created. And that new man daily wages war. He crucifies, mortifies, drowns the old Adam and ideally is making progress in that. In fact, I kind of think the progress is always there. If the Holy Spirit's there, it's always there. That progress just sometimes has to be believed by faith because it's not immediately evident to us subjectively. So we have the old nature still we're battling mm-hmm. with the new nature. And um, it can be painful. Oh, absolutely. And is that, the, is that part of the suffering Christ is talking about? If mm-hmm. you suffer with me? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's essential to the Christian life, and it is suffering. Our sinful nature afflicts us. We wish we could be rid of it. We confess against it. We fight against it. That's the point. We give the flesh no quarter. Where it gains the upper hand, we confess it, and it no longer has the upper hand. That's this is essential. So we battle not just the devil, not just the world, but our own sinful nature. And because of where we are, the sinful nature is frequently stronger in this sense, stronger in the material sense than the new man. That's what Paul's complaining about when he says, the good I want to do, that's the new man. I do not do. That's the old man. The evil that I don't want to do, that's the new man. That I keep on doing, that's the old man. So in terms of the material reality, the old Adam seems so superior and so much stronger. He's constantly leading us astray. Um, But now, in the fuller sense, the new man still prevails because he claims the blood of Christ, because he keeps his mind formed by the law of God. If I agree with the law that it is good, it is no longer sin who dwells in me. So where does that start to fall? That starts to fall if a Christian goes, you know what, that's not really sin. It's normal. It's okay. Look at the world. They all do it. They all say it's okay. It's not really... So now you actually have a critical thing happening in that soul where the old, where the old man is now crucifying the new man. The old man has wedged the new man away from conformity to the law of God and is now putting in a different standard. Once he gets that camel's nose under the tent, it's not long until he comes in all the way. You just have a Christian then who says, well, I'm going to live exactly how the world tells me to live, and Jesus is my Savior, which is probably no Christian at all. The Lord's the judge, but as a general frame, you would look at that and say, that's, somewhat, that's a soul that has mortal, impenitent sin. That's a Christian in name only. Yes, I see a hand right back there. Yeah, so oh, a, another analogy that uh, is helpful here for baptism is uh, that of adoption. 
So in my family, we have rules like we don't rape, uh, pillage, and plunder. That's just not something we do, right? <laughs> Maybe uh, I, should, I should probably put that on my, uh, <laughs> on my wall, like as they leave the front door. Roadies don't rape, pillage, and plunder. So now, but, s- suppose I come across a young man who is raping, pillaging, and plundering and saying, hey, this is no way to live. Mm-hmm. Come be a part of my family. I'm going to adopt you into my family. You are no longer a criminal. Mm-hmm. I don't do that so that he can continue with his bad behavior. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm going to say, hey, that's not what we do here. You are my son now. Don't do that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So he may still have those tendencies, Mm -hmm. uh, but I'd be on him. That's not why you're here. That's Mm -hmm. not who we are. You're part of the family. So uh, it was external to him. The, The adoption was a legal thing that happened. Uh, he is part of the family, but that doesn't mean his old inclinations are gone, but it also doesn't mean he's free to pursue those. That's just not what we do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I think it's a great point. Yeah, so baptism as adoption into a new household, and I think Vicar's going to preach a sermon on a similar theme, so I won't go into more detail uh, this coming Sunday. So, okay, returning to the point, and this is... Kenneth is using the is using baptism, and that's right. That's good. It's wonderful. I can't think of a better thing to use. Just don't think of this as as like some narrow thing. Just as baptism encompasses the whole reality of what it means to be a Christian, so also then this principle encompasses this twofold principle encompasses the whole reality of what it means to be a Christian. That we are justified by that impute of Christ's righteousness by the non-imputation or remission of our sins. But the second half of the coin is then God sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts, causing us new birth and causing us to be um, renewed in such a way that then that battle commences and we're repenting constantly. We're being conformed, not into the image of this world, but being transformed with the mind of Christ. And that means, again, having our, having our conscience formed by the word of God, specifically in place than the law. So you can see that the law is, there's like an old law and a new law. There's old good works and new good works. This gets contrasted in different ways. <coughs> but these are fruits of the spirit that we're describing. Pastor. Okay. Pastor? Yeah, please. A follow-up question. Uh, you said something which hit me, uh, the removal of guilt. Uh, yeah. It seems that Christians, you know, re- guilt remains in a Christian, uh, and often get, that oh, will see. result in, you know, therapy and seeking other solutions, like you mentioned on Sunday with medical uh, pharmacy issues. Uh, in your opinion or your view, what, why does guilt remain when it says basically it's, it's all removed? Uh, what, what is not being done? Yeah, so thank you for that. One helpful distinction is I think the way that Chemnitz is using it, certainly the way I'm using it, is the removal of guilt is objective guilt. So courtroom guilt, that's what's gone. So when God sees you, he does not reckon you as guilty not talking about the internal aspect. Um, the internal aspect is 
is harder to work out, and I think in the abstract is almost impossible to work out. Now you're dealing with a particular soul, a particular conscience, a particular set of circumstances. There's times and places in which guilt is exactly the right thing to do and is spiritually beneficial. There's times and places in which that's not the case. And a pastor may well say to such a soul, if before the throne of God in heaven you are objectively not guilty, it is sinful for you to continue on in this guilty feeling and this wallowing because it's unbelief. You're calling God a liar. He has decreed you to be innocent. Believe it. And stop this nonsense and crucify the you know, spiritual self-cutting that you're doing. So there might be a time and a place to do that. Another time and a place where, you know, I can, I can imagine a pastoral set of circumstances in which someone says, I feel terribly guilty of that. Okay, tell me more. Well, that guilt is driving me to, you know, really look at this part of my life and that part of my life. And it's driving me to um, get help here and get this cleaned up and repair that relationship. And I'm going to look at that and say, okay, I'm going to keep an eye on it. But that seems to me the operation of the Holy Spirit and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be careful and watch the conscience, but yeah, why not? And you can reflect on these things in terms of your own soul too, though it's much harder to do because it's sort of like, I don't know. I don't know what a good analogy is. Trying to, trying to right the plane when you're uh, caught in a tornado and it, the whole thing's spinning around. Like you don't, that's kind of the problem. It's sort, sort of why we all need pastors. We all need people external to us. Um, it's too easy to get caught in your own head games and your own disorientation. Get somebody outside of you to listen is an extremely important thing. Okay, great questions. Thank you for the wonderful back and forth here. Um, let's press on to 116. Are those remnants of original sin in the baptized truly and in themselves sins? Answer, original sin is not sanctified by baptism so that after baptism has been received, it, that is original sin, is good, holy, God-pleasing, and accepted by him. Let me, let me pause right here. This is alive and well in the popular preachers, preachers of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, or the ELCA, um, Lutherans, which are Lutherans largely in name only. And it's this, so how this presents itself is, okay, and they use all the, all the Lutheran words. It's how you're deceived into thinking this is good, right, and salutary. Meanwhile, it's just satanic. And so it's, I am baptized. I'm a Christian. I have the righteousness of Christ imputed to me. But baptism also has sanctified my original nature, so I can very easily be a homosexual, or I can very easily, um, you know, nobody, this is just isn't a popular sin praised by the world right now. I could very easily be a thief or an embezzler. I could do whatever I want to do because I am baptized by Christ. My original sin has now been deified, has been rendered acceptable to God. So there's, you can see how it's a sleight of hand. There's now no inner transformation. It's just a blessing of whatever you desire to do. Um, and this, yeah, maybe I'll stop there. This, this analysis is thoroughgoing. This is really just the other side of the coin of this is radical Lutheranism. 
um, which is sort of the more sophisticated, more quote-unquote orthodox appearing version of this. And that's just that you've been set free from your, so you've been set free from the law, so what remains is just you, and you can go do whatever you want to do, you're free. Which is just the other side of the coin of deifying whatever it is you want to do, which is your human nature tainted by original sin. If you're not conformed to God and to his law, there's no vacuum, there's no neutrality, it's going to be Satan. You see? So, Thoroughgoing in um, liberal Christianity that tries to cling to things like Christ and baptism and these old remnants. Uh, This thing, even though it's 500 years old, and even though 500 years ago it looked very different than it does today, this heresy is still alive and well and wreaking havoc in souls. All right, so wanted to give that little brief commentary But again, let's not lose the forest for the trees, so I'll go quickly. At 116, original sin is not sanctified by baptism, so that after baptism has been received, it is good, holy, God-pleasing, and accepted by him, uh, or an accepted thing in those who are sanctified. But it is and remains also in the sanctified, truly and in itself, not a good, but an evil thing, and in conflict with divine law. That is, it is truly and in itself sin. So Paul also expressly calls it sin, Romans 7, 17. And it is a thing damnable in itself and worthy of eternal death. And that's why as a Christian you go, well, you know, Rhodey tells me about uh, that my sins aren't imputed to me. Rhodey tells me that I have a new nature, but I still feel like, I sh- like I'm deserving of hell. Yeah, you are. (laughs) But the other two things remain true, and in fact are the dominant things, because those are the things of God, and God's going to have his way. So that's, I think, very helpful for us to understand that if you look at yourself and feel like you are still damnable, that's not an error. You're right. That's a correct reflection. Just don't thereby deny that Christ has remitted those sins and taken away your guilt, and the Holy Spirit is at work in you with new impulses. Indeed, ironically, it's the work of the Holy Spirit himself in you that's allowing you to see that you're worthy of damnation. And unbelievers, they don't look at themselves and say, I'm worthy of damnation. They say, I'm not as bad as that guy. So again, very different realities. Okay, picking back up then. It is a thing damnable in itself and worthy of eternal death. If God would want to test it according to the statement of the law, according to the strictness of his judgment, if it were not uh, that, it is not imputed for damnation to those who by faith are and remain in Christ Jesus. Exactly. So if you don't have the imputation of Christ's righteousness, if you don't have faith in that, then it is truly damnable. Okay, yes? Would, would we be saying a man is violating his conscience if he continues living? Would that be applicable? Okay, so, so give me a little more information. Well, if you... Would someone be violating his conscience in continuing in sin? Mm-hmm. 
Is that all? Yeah, you don't want to do that. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah, that's the, so you don't want to trample your conscience because ultimately it erodes and degrades your conscience. So this is where you want your conscience formed by the law of God. You want, I mean, your, your conscience is, is imputed with righteousness on account of Christ, and the conscience relaxes in that. But your conscience is always going to be formed to something. That, that's the nature of it. Is your conscience going to be formed according to the precepts of the world? That's where you look at people who can do monstrous things and say monstrous things, mutilate the bodies of children, be pro-pedophilia, be pro-bestiality. Their conscience is conformed into the morality of the world, so they think these things are good, and the opposite is hateful and mean and oppressive and judgmental and evil. That's actually how they feel in their hearts. That's how they experience it, because their conscience is so malformed. Again, then, back to the original principle. Your, your, con- your conscience will be conformed in accord with God's word, God's law, or it will be conformed into some image, some word and law of Satan. That's it. Those are the two options. I, maybe you have a Mormon view of that, where you wear the white underwear and, look, and are generally pleasant to be around, or maybe you're the screeching, blue and pink-haired, look like you're possessed by a demon because you are. Either way, your either conscience is conformed into a satanic image, not into the image of faith in Christ, true renewal of the Holy Spirit, and the law, the spiritual law that flows forth from that in the true mortification of the old man and the blossoming forth of the positive fruits of the Spirit. Yeah, so you don't, this is, I mean, just to do it quick, because we've got a couple more minutes. I don't know how much further we're going to go. So why you don't want to violate your conscience, because your conscience is like an organ. It's like you don't want to abuse any part of your body, because it's not going to be good for your body. You don't want to abuse your lungs um, by overindulging in cigarettes or, you know, whatever, vaping or hookahs or whatever is popular, because then your lungs aren't going to function well over time. So you don't want to overindulge in those things. I don't really care if you smoke or not. I just don't be enslaved by anything. And uh, you're, in the same way you can damage your lungs so that they no longer function properly, you can damage your conscience, and you do that by trampling. So your conscience, if it's, if it's not, and to varying degrees we all struggle with this. It's more like a spectrum. But our consciences can be uh, abused in such a way that um, obviously they become malformed. But then, so the conscience is malformed. Let's say it thinks something's a sin that's not a sin. So a biblical example of that is eating meat sacrificed to idols. A conscience is malformed and thinks that eating that meat is sinning, is doing something idolatrous. It's not objectively true, but it's subjectively true for that person, for that conscience. Should they trample their conscience and eat that meat? No. In fact, for them, it is a sin, Paul goes so far as to say. And they're damaging their conscience because their conscience is saying, danger, danger. And in trampling it, even though it's malformed, in trampling it, they're damaging it. And that damage is organic in such a way that then it's going to be damaged holistically. Then when it comes to things that really are sin, the conscience is like, well, I sinned here, no biggie. I can sin here. 
problem is in the second one, it's really a sin. In the first one, it's not. Okay, so that's why you don't want to um, trample your conscience, even if your conscience is malformed. But what you do want to do is have your conscience ever reformed into the image of God and his word, his law. So that's ultimately what it means to be a healthy or mature Christian. I know we don't like to talk about Christians having um, different distinctions among them, but they absolutely 100% do. That's why Paul talks about the weak and the strong. The strong are those who have their consciences formed according to the law of God. And insofar as they have that, they're strong. They know what a sin is and what isn't a sin. And then another element of that strength is being able to see the conscience at work in their brothers and sisters and work in a way that is productive for them spiritually. That's why Paul says, it's going to lead my brother into sin, I'll never eat meat again. The point being, I can see this weakness in my brother, I need to, because I love my brother, I need to help him along that path. Now that path can look different in different ways. And it's obviously this principle has been abused. Like, oh, I can't handle this thing, so therefore the rest of the church shouldn't be able to handle it either. Right? My conscience thinks that coffee is a sin, so therefore the whole church needs to get rid of coffee. No, that's the, if that's true, that's the weaker brother being manipulative over and against the whole, and that's the weaker brother leading himself into a further damaged spiritual condition. So it's incumbent upon the, strength, the strong to correct that. All right, but that's the point at play more broadly. So conscience is set right by the gospel in this sense, that the conscience feels itself guilty and condemned. When the conscience feels that, it's set right by the gospel. Your sins are forgiven for the sake of Christ. They are. You're not responsible for those in any eternal sense. Christ forgives you. God's at peace with you. That sets the conscience right. But we're not talking about the conscience being formed at that point. A conscience can't be formed by the forgiveness of sins as such because the forgiveness of sins as such is just the removal of guilt. It's not the instruction as to what then is proper. It's not the substance that forms the conscience. Okay, I see we've taken ourselves a little over, or I've taken us a little over. Let's uh, pause there for the week. We'll jump back into this discussion of original sin uh, next week. The Lord be with you.